0: I'm Joshua Kage from The Christian Citizen, and this is episode 25 of Justice, Mercy, Faith. We're back this week from our summer break and excited to bring you several new episodes of the podcast over the coming weeks, beginning here with a one-on-one interview between Christian Citizen editor Curtis Ramsey-Lucas and contributor William Johnson Everett whose latest piece, Living in God's Image, Despotism or Republican Democracy, which can be found at ChristianCitizen.us, challenged us to explore the connection of what kind of political order is fostered by our fundamental God images, symbols, and rituals, and how do our basic images of God legitimize or critique our institutions of governance? Here now is Curtis Ramsey Lucas with William Johnson Everett.
1: I'm pleased to welcome to the podcast William Johnson Everett, the Herbert Gazork Professor of Christian Social Ethics Emeritus at Andover Newton Seminary at Yale. He is the author of the recently reprinted book, God's Federal Republic, Reconstructing Our Governing Symbol. And in the interest of full disclosure, was my professor during my time at Andover Newton more than a few years ago. Bill, it's good to have you with us today.
2: Well, it's good to be back uh, doing something with you, Curtis.
1: In your uh, recent article for The Christian Citizen, Living in God's Image, Despotism or Republican Democracy, you note the steady support President Trump enjoys from America's white evangelicals. Many have tried to understand the apparent disconnect between Trump's policies and pronouncements and Christian teaching, with some concluding white evangelicals are either willfully blind or ethical hypocrites. And without discounting those possibilities, you argue something deeper is at play, that it may not be a matter of ethics as much as of worship. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, uh, what I'm trying to get at here is that our deepest uh, dispositions in our ethical life and in our life in general are uh, nurtured in worship and the images and uh, dramatic patterns uh, and the settings of worship, uh, the art and music all work together uh, to orient us in a particular way toward our action and toward seeing authority in certain ways. And so the image of God is really at the root of uh, our sense of what is uh, ultimate authority uh, in the world, and uh, many of us then uh, go from that to say, well, we should derive our image of government uh, and its authority structure from uh, the way we view God. So uh, I started, uh, I've been working on that question uh, for my whole life, it seems, but since I grew up in Washington with all of the uh, panoply of uh, rituals and symbols and monuments, and uh, I think that's probably where I got it. Uh, But uh, I I began to think about this in terms of this peculiar uh, question that people are struggling with so uh, deeply these days about how to reconcile Uh, support for President Trump with uh, the teachings of Jesus.
1: In this article, um, as elsewhere, as you've mentioned, you argue that political orders are rooted in fundamental God images, symbols, rituals. What are the basic images of God undergirding the American experiment in democracy? And how do these images legitimate critique our institutions of governance?
2: Well, that that really is a big one. Um, There was quite a struggle at the very beginning uh, among our founders, uh, whether they would continue a tradition that had been nurtured in Europe for almost 1500 years, that uh, the kind of monarchical image of God as the king Uh, and ruler of the universe, would also be the image of government. And uh, James I, in the early 18th century, had... uh, had claimed that, of course, the divine right of kings was rooted in this Christianity, so there was this connection of what they called the throne and the altar, and uh, some people in America wanted to just continue that. But the revolutionaries and uh, Jefferson, in particular, wanted to separate that religious language from uh, that language that would serve to undergird the American experiment, and that would be that uh, law is is the highest. And, of course, you could find that in the law-giving God of uh, of uh, Exodus in the Bible. Uh, and then uh, that God's providence and wisdom would, in some general way, be guiding uh, human affairs, but that Uh, Government should be a work of reason and persuasion according to common sense uh, perceptions of the world around them, namely the science of their time. So that was really, uh, uh, while it was supported by many Christians, uh, it was a departure from the traditional view of how uh, the churches should uh, serve to provide legitimation for the uh, governmental order. One of uh,
1: my sort of stock arguments is uh, that the separation of church and state, as we understand it, in the United States doesn't mean separation of faith and politics, but you might push back on that some. um, As you've just mentioned, you argue that Jefferson's separation of religion and government, however necessary to the founding of our government, has resulted in in a privatization of religion, a separation of the religious from the political. Has that on the whole, been a good thing um, or not?
2: Well, I think it has been, on the whole, a good thing to try to uh, insulate the governmental, uh, legislative, uh, judicial activity uh, from a, um, a direct, literal interpretation of, for instance, uh, biblical language into our laws in a pluralistic world. And uh, the pluralism of America uh, really uh, meant that we could not have an established church, which one would it be? Uh, So the best thing would be to cultivate what they called a kind of civil religion, which would be a mediating set of symbols between uh, the traditional religions and the uh, governmental sphere. Uh, And I think that this has been an extremely important uh, uh, matter that has insulated us largely from the kind of religious wars that Europe uh, suffered for uh, generations while preserving vitality in the churches. Uh, In the European situation, uh, the only thing you could do would be practically to anesthetize the churches, so they wouldn't produce these religious wars. Uh, Now the problem is, is that then the churches uh, nurtured only a personal piety that could not speak to the issues of justice in the society. And, of course, you've been working on trying to uh, draw out the justice side of, uh, of our historic uh, faith traditions to speak to justice issues without saying uh, uh, the, this is the peculiar Christian way to, to do things.
1: You, you talk at some length in the article about um, this image of God uh, that is very much at the root of the Western tradition and Western political experience, the image of God as sovereign, as all-powerful father, um, as you term it, um, heavenly despot, um, active in all sectors of life. Um, and of course, as, as you're just saying now, that the American experiment in democracy has made a break from that. Um, but that's still very much kind of a functioning image is it not within not only evangelical churches, but uh, churches more broadly in, in, in the American context?
2: Yes. Well, that is my point there, that this is very broadly uh, speaking the dominant tradition about our image of God as a kind of despot uh, who has all power, uh, who is the pater potestas, as the Romans said, uh, uh, all authority is gathered into one, um, and God can speak reality by his word, uh, which of course, uh, this is then the whole issue about uh, lying and truth uh, when it comes from the uh, president, uh, and many other features of the the traditional despotic notion of God uh, also are seen as very important, namely to rescue us in times of peril, part the sea and let us get out of bondage, and, and all of those images compound to fill American, uh, what, what you call popular piety, uh, that, uh, that God is a despot who can kind of abrogate all the laws of nature and so forth in order to, uh, to rescue his people. Uh, and, and the problem there, of course, is when you then extend that to government, you collapse the uh, separation of powers, which we have in our society in order to limit power, and it's uh, becoming an imperial unity, and to separate uh, the private interests of a president or of an office holder from the public good, uh, whereas a despot just rules everything as his household, and and so those themes I see very much in play today, and uh, and the so-called liberal churches have not done much more to help transform our image of God. Uh, than the very conservative or evangelical or other churches as well. And uh, if you will, one of the main things I've tried to do in my own small way is try to contribute to nurturing patterns of God image and worship that uh, provide a way for churches to be both legitimating of constitutional democracy, but also have a way for them to critique its failures, which, of course, we know are many.
1: What, is, uh, what does that look like? I mean, what are, what are some other um, resources, some other images that um, we can draw on from Scripture and Christian tradition to do that work of refashioning?
2: Yeah, well, that, there is actually a rich uh, heritage around this. Um, and, and not only that, which we can get from theologians uh, from the 17th and 18th century. Uh, but uh, but more recent, uh, there one of the things I point in the article are, for instance, the tradition of the I am when when Yahweh uh, re- reveals. Uh, the divine reality to Moses. It is, I am. I am that I, what I will be, various ways of understanding that Hebrew. But this really introduces an incredible dimension of mystery where we cannot put an image on God. And uh, in Islam, of course, which is in the same uh, uh, tradition, uh, there are 99 names for God, so you don't get... Uh, stuck on any one of them, Uh, and so the holy is beyond imagery. That's one thing we need to remember. The second is that wisdom is at the heart of God. Uh, Most of this despotic image of God is that God's will is the most important thing, and then God wills this and that whenever God wants to, Uh, whereas the wisdom tradition says there's an order, a wisdom, a law, It is at the core of the divine reality. And from this, of course, uh, ancient and traditional Jews put the law central. And we know the excesses of of putting the law central. Uh, St. Paul, uh, I think, did a job on that. Uh, But uh, we need to remember this kind of legal uh, wisdom core at, uh, at the center of God. And then the idea of God as a partner in the creative process through covenant, Bonds of faithfulness with with all of us uh, is a very rich tradition. Uh, I also point out in the article how uh, really. Getting to the idea of God as Trinity in a new way can be very fruitful. Uh, we we often think of Trinity as a kind of monarchy, a pyramid of uh, the fathers at the top, the son is the heir apparent, and the spirit is sort of this feminine uh, har- harmony between them. This goes all the way back uh, uh, to Augustine in our tradition. But that is not uh, uh, really honoring the equality of these, uh, as we call them, personae in the divine life. And so uh, today, uh, people like Richard Rohr talk about the d- Trinity as a divine dance. And in the Russian iconic tradition, you also have that divine dance. Uh, process theologians talk about God as presiding in a process of becoming uh, or uh as with Sally McFag who speaks about uh, the creation as the body of God, that God is this uh, very organic, she calls agent organic uh, uh, core of spirit within our existence, uh, pushing it toward its uh, perfection. There, so there are many, many images of God that we uh, have in our tradition that we can bring to the fore. Uh, that can support a conception of differentiated governmental authority and of spirited participation in the governing power by by individual citizens uh, and putting the idea of law in the depths of God's being rather than in simply God's will. Well, those are just some of the images that come to my mind.
1: Are there uh, places that you see this kind of um, refashioning of worship taking place?
2: Well, I have, uh, in a very limited way, tried to cultivate what we call round table worship, uh, where uh, the the table uh, that the Eucharistic table, the communion table, is a round table. We're all equal at that table, uh, and Christ's. Spirit presides at that table, and we enter into conversation about, uh, uh, usually about a scriptural passage, but maybe some uh, uh, poetry or other uh, or, or a hymn that has uh, deep meaning uh, to struggle with the problems of today. Um, so, so these kinds of small gatherings at table are kind of a, what I call the core of a democratic public and 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 therefore, a return to the table in a new way can be a really energizing part of church life uh, so that that's very important I think um, and uh, I guess you have to see it as as very distinct from the kind of charismatic mega church preacher who has a big show, and people are just mesmerized by it, and uh, they aren't really participating very much in shaping it or or being co-creators of it, they're just an audience. And indeed the chairs on many of these churches are just right out of a theater. And you might think you were at a, a rock concert uh, with people on the stage, uh, uh, kind of just overwhelming you with the spectacle, uh, rather than that we are participating in the presence of Christ at table, sharing food and drink and conversation. So, uh, those are the kinds of things I look for in churches uh, where people gather at table in a new way um, and to uh, converse and to share in the bounty of the earth and, and uh, renew themselves in that spirit.
1: As an ethicist, I don't think you would counsel Christians not to watch their ethics, not to be concerned with whether or not they're living in accord with Jesus's teachings. But the concern really at the heart of the article is not so much ethics um, as it is with the formative nature of worship. Is it uh, accurate to say that what we worship and how we worship shapes
2: who we are? Oh, yes, I think that's the key uh, the key element here. And not only shapes us individually, but our understandings of our relationships with others. You know, if your church is what I call the shoebox, with just everybody looking at a single figure in a kind of high and lifted up pulpit, that's an image of proper authority and governance. Uh, if your church is more kind of circular and people are... And and for instance, the table is at the center, and you're gathered around the table. That's a really different understanding of what's what's ultimately important in our life. You know, sharing a table or being mesmerized by the charismatic preacher, uh, and uh, and so it, it's a group activity as well as a personal one. And and um, I have really uh, over time, as you as you remember, kept I. I taught a course on worship and ethics to try to draw attention to how important the worship is, because without that, you just enter into whatever ethical formula the current culture is offering you, and you have no uh, source of creative energy or nurture uh, and forgiveness, uh, falling short of that ethical goal, all those things in worship are so important. And without it, I think our ethics becomes dry, brittle, and, um, and uncreative. Do you have any closing thoughts for our
1: listeners, anything we haven't talked about today?
2: Well, uh, obviously, I urge uh, I urge all of our uh, listeners to uh, look at ways their own worship life can uh, dramatize more effectively the kind of co-creative uh, gathering with God's uh, presence uh, that we know in the Christ event in the in the table events uh, of uh, uh, of our tradition. And and use that to create the sense of conversation, respectful conversation, and listening at table. In and for me, the circle really is a much better way to gather at the table, uh, and that this can be a, a really vital way for to enable uh, individual congregations to deal with conflict, uh, as well as a model for communities. To try to get past these this incredible polarization that uh, we all experience, and offer a genuine alternative to our society, uh, to the kind of uh, competitive greediness that is uh, that is consuming us. So I'm getting a little homiletical here, Curtis, uh, and as you know, it can happen <laughs> with me. But uh, I really uh, appreciate your interest in this. Uh, kind of perspective, and I hope that your readers find it uh, stimulating, and maybe they can have their own circle conversations about it.
1: Well, I thank you for uh, sharing your thoughts today and, uh, and the article, um, and for taking the time uh, to be with us today.
2: Well, it was really uh, very enjoyable, and, uh, and thanks so much for inviting me.
1: The article is Living in God's Image, Despotism or Republican Democracy, and it can be found at christiancitizen.us. While you're there, be sure to subscribe to The Weekly, our e-newsletter, and as always, you can find and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you.
0: Thank you to this week's guest, William Johnson Everett. Our theme music is Believable Too by Peter Sandberg. The Christian Citizen is edited by Curtis Ramsey Lucas and is a publication of the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. The show, website, and newsletter are produced by myself, Joshua Kage. Stories are copy edited by Hannah Estefanos. Our art director is Danny Ellison. The Christian Citizen editorial board is Dr. Jeffrey Hagray, Laura Alden, Susan Gottschall, Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, the Reverend Salvador Oriana, the Reverend Dr. Marilyn Turner Triplett, and the Reverend Cassandra Carcuff williams and our advisors are Sherilyn Crow, the Reverend Kimberly Peyton Jones, the Reverend Stephen D. Martin, the Reverend Marvin A. McMickle, and the Reverend Harold Dean. To learn more about the Christian Citizen, visit our website, christiancitizen.us. That concludes this episode of Justice Mercy Faith. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Thanks for listening.